This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. We are almost there, FDA very close as of this recording, to giving final approval for Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine, the emergency use authorization. Uh, when it does, deliveries will begin across the country with healthcare workers and those in nursing homes getting the shots first. So will this be the beginning of the end for the pandemic? Now that the vaccine is about to be rolled out, lots of people want to cut to the front of the line. How how do health officials figure out who gets what in terms of priority? Maybe we are going a little too far, going overboard with the wipes and sanitizing everything. Nah. So we will talk nah, you about can, you can never that. Clean. My mother used to say you never can clean enough. Yeah, just once and then twice for good measure, right? Yeah. <laughs> the live music industry has been hit hard. We'll hear from a notable person in the industry who's trying to to save it. But first, we start with the impending vaccine approval. Peter Pitts, president and co-founder of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest. He's a former associate commissioner of the FDA. Peter, this seems like a more daunting process than what people expected. Do you agree? Well, the good news is that the FDA and drug developers and academicians and the National Institute of Health did their job and got a vaccine discovered uh, they can manufacture it quickly and less expensively, and the FDA is going to give it an emergency use authorization, I hear, yet tonight, certainly by tomorrow morning. So theoretically, by Saturday afternoon, we should be rolling up our sleeves for a priority audience of healthcare workers, uh, people that live in senior facilities. So we'll see. You mentioned, you know, the next big hurdle here, because this is really a relay race. So the baton has now been passed to the logicians, and they need to get the vaccine to where it's needed to be, because it needs to be refrigerated at minus 73 degrees centigrade, 93 degrees, negative 93 Fahrenheit for, the, for you uh, non-metric folks out there. And the question becomes, as you, as you mentioned, you know, who's leading the parade? Who's in charge nationally? Well, certainly the U.S. Army is helping out with logistics, and that's good news because they're the best when it comes to logistics. But who is in charge at the various state levels? Who's in charge at hospitals to receive the information from a state perspective, what are they doing to educate the population to liaise with hospitals and then multiply that times 50 states in the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico? Uh, we don't know. We need to know. What, what this process is missing right now, I mean, the logistics process is transparency. Uh, there will be a lot of people pointing fingers, which means we need to know exactly what's going on and right now. And that's not even talking about the need for a really large national education campaign as to the value of vaccines, both within communities of color and those who doubt uh, the value or, and virtues of uh, vaccines and the FDA process. So a lot of work yet to happen. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, tell me the potential hurdles, but you know, just going through it, there are a million potential hurdles and they're going to happen every other few weeks when new shipments go out, uh, hopefully, to people. But right. do you think we pull this off without hitting too many of those as we're jumping over them? Well, I think we'll hit a bunch of uh, bumps in the road, but I don't think anything's going to, you know, break the, uh, the crankcase, so to speak. I think what we have to recognize is that for the foreseeable future, all these doses need to go to hospitals, uh, both for refrigeration purposes, but also to vaccinate doctors, nurses, and people that work in those facilities, and also to senior centers who have the ability to refrigerate and vaccinate their populations. You know, job one here, whether it's vaccines or therapeutics, is to keep people alive. And we know that the people most at risk are seniors living in senior facilities and healthcare workers. Now, the good news is where those people are, they have refrigeration opportunities. So we can get the vaccines to them. We know where they are. They've got receiving uh, 
people there, you know, the whole bit. But we actually have to get it done and let these people know it's coming and that it's coming soon. And then we have to have people come in to get vaccinated. You know, having the vaccine is good. Having the vaccine where it's supposed to be uh, distributed to, that's good too. Now we have to have people come and roll up their sleeves. This is then, once you get past the healthcare workers, which was a very clearly defined group, once you get past those who are senior citizens in nursing homes, another clearly defined group, that's where it gets really, really murky because, you know, essential workers, who's an essential worker? What industries? There are, it, there are essential workers who are in contact with people all the time. There are essential workers who aren't. And then do they take precedence over people who are perhaps 65 and older with comorbidities but who are not in nursing homes? My point, Peter, is why wasn't this all figured out Way before now, everyone was anticipating a vaccine. Everybody knew that something was down the, you know, coming down the pipeline. Why are we first having apparently these discussions now? Well, you know, I, I've been talking about this need for about six months. Well, no, no, I know, I know you think, have because you've been and, on and our it, show, and no one's talked about it. But you, you make a good point. And not only is it uh, not being addressed on the federal level, obviously the CDC will issue its guidelines. But why weren't those guidelines issued four months ago? This is not a this is not this really is not rocket science. It's not hard epidemiology, but no state has stepped up to the plate. I recognize the woman you spoke to from the California Department of Health. She's an epidemiologist. Why didn't she do it? You know, and, and talking about, well, we want to see the efficacy and the safety of the vaccine. That's beside the point. These people were asleep at the wheel, too busy pointing the finger at Donald Trump and at each other to actually do their jobs. And now we're stuck trying to rush forward to get the jobs done. What we need are good, solid federal recommendations. Then the states will decide what to go forward. I think once we get past, you know, uh, healthcare workers and senior citizens living in facilities, I think we need to talk about, you know, firefighters, police officers, teachers, because we want kids back at school. Teachers are at risk more so than the kids. What about people with comorbidities? Absolutely. And I think that's a great idea because I'm one of them. People 65 and over, definitely. You have to start thinking about those most at risk of dying or having serious manifestations of the virus being prioritized on the vaccine list. Again, it's not hard. We've got to do it. We've got to communicate. We've got to identify people who, and let, so people know what group they fall into so they can get prepared to get vaccinated. Peter, one of the things that's really been bugging me as I've been reading in the past few days uh, reports from different states and different industries that are, again, jockeying for a position to get their people on that list of, of most important workers to get it, is there seems to be this this argument or, or division between those who say the vaccine ought to be given first to people most likely to die from COVID, and then there's this other camp that says, no, no, we got to give the vaccine to people who are most likely to spread COVID, which would be, by and large, a younger demographic and, and, and a whole different uh, uh, person, really, than the kind of, of person that's more likely to die from it. And what bugs me about that argument, and you tell me if you think that I'm being bugged for the right re reasons, is the, the trials to date for both Moderna and Pfizer, as far as I understand, do not demonstrate that these vaccines stop the spread of the virus only that they seem to be pretty effective at stopping disease and therefore probably death. So doesn't that nullify that that argument that, well, we should give it to people who are going to most likely spread it? All right. So I'm going to speak slowly because I've, I've been talking about this for a long time. It's really not complicated. People aren't listening. You've got that exactly right. Vaccines don't cure somebody that's already sick. Vaccines prevent somebody from getting infected in the first place. 
That's what saves lives. And we all get vaccinated at about 60% national, we begin to have a herd impact where we begin to move from containing the virus, which was part of a mitigating the virus, which is when the virus is in control, to containing the virus, which is where we're in control. Now, as far as younger people who are concerned, who are spreaders, and they are, there's a there's a brand new, very sophisticated technology to help those people. It's called wearing a mask and social distancing. You know, the reason that young people are super spreaders is because they are being irresponsible. Let's call let's call it like it is. If people would do the right thing, we'd be in a much better place. Vaccinating people, re- rewarding people for being irresponsible is not the best route forward here. It does not save lives. It reinforces bad behavior. So what do we do about all the lobbying and all the jockeying, which we couldn't expect because this is how the world works? Um, what do you think makes a list? What do you think doesn't and there's all these articles being written of this group and this group and this group they're all asking for it and and bank tellers say we need it because we're close to the public and some of the uh, newscasters say we need it because we're out on the streets and some of the truckers say we need it because we're driving uber drivers say we got to take people places everybody's got something in this and and you know you can't almost just go off the what's open under essential businesses lists because even like the scented candle makers still qualify under the DHS list. So uh, I'm not knowing against the fragrance industry, but do you need your vaccine now? I, I don't know. I'm not making the decision. Well, you know, I think we have to take the wax out of our ears on this one. You know, I think it's very clear that you have to save lives. That means healthcare workers who are exposed every day and are saving lives because of their jobs and seniors in senior centers who are dropping like flies. That, that happened to us here in New York. It was a devastating mistake we must never allow to happen again. The next people coming from a triage perspective who are most at risk are people with serious underlying pre-existing conditions, as you mentioned. These are the people who are taking up hospital beds. If we want to help hospital workers do a better job, let's have fewer people in the hospital. So let's get that next tranche of people vaccinated. I believe now we can begin thinking about what can we do best to make our economy more open? And I think teachers are at the top of that list. Because if kids can't go back to school, parents can't go back to work. You know, kids are not at risk as much as teachers are. Let's vaccinate teachers and adults who work in schools. After that, you start looking at age groups, 65 and over, and then you reach the everybody else category. Now, this sounds like a lot of groups. People need to be told what group they're in, need to be told when they are uh, expected to get vaccinated and where. If we don't tell people when and where, we can't expect them to do the right thing. When I was talking to the the uh, person who's basically in charge of helping to write the policy for this state, California, I raised that question. I said, how, do, how are people going to know what group they're in? How are they going to know when they're going to go and get the vaccine, where they're going to go to get the vaccine? And I think, as you heard, the basic answer was, well, we're working on it. Well, that's a that's a fourth and 35 punt. That woman <laughs> should be fired. The, you know, these plans should, should, should have been in place four months ago, period. It requires no sophisticated data analysis. It's making a choice, sticking with it, and putting a, a solid communications plan in place. Yeah, you wouldn't have everybody jockeying for a position if the positions were already released. Peter Pitts, president, co-founder, Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. Cleaning products flying off store shelves since March. I can have, I have that vision of them flying. Shopping carts full. <laughs> Cleaning wipes are about equal to gold these days. 
but they probably shouldn't be. Yeah, we might all be cleaning everything a little too much and wasting our time, especially when you scrub and then the color comes off the table. That's oh, yeah, how you I know. Hate, I hate that. Charles Haas, director of the Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering at Drexel University, co-author of an op-ed in the Washington Post, We Are Overcleaning in Response to COVID. So, Charles, uh, benefit to all the wiping and all the cleaning, or are we doing too much? It's not clear that there's any cleaning beyond what would ordinarily do in the absence of COVID that's necessary in general community settings. Um, the key is really hand washing. Well, does it come down to, to as it often does, money? Uh, a lot of employers are, you know, stocking their offices for those who are still working in them with wipes and, and disinfectants rather than do things like upgrading ventilation systems, doing things that might better purify the air and might have a bigger impact on the spread of the coronavirus than wiping for the 10,000th time a table. It's exactly the latter. I think a lot of that money could get better bang for the buck at reducing risk by spending it on ventilation. Take us through the why that this isn't a problem. And maybe the, the scenario we always see with germs, right, is somebody sneezed on that doorknob or their hand and they touch the door and I'm going to touch it next. What happens to me? Well, so in order for you to actually become exposed to it, your hand needs to touch that surface and there will be some transfer of the organisms from that surface to your hand. Typically, at most 10% get transferred. Then if you don't wash your hands in the interim and touch your nose or mouth or eyes, you'll get transference from your hand to that surface. And that's another factor of 10. So at most, you're exposed to 1% of what might be there, assuming that that person who coughed or sneezed was actually <clears throat> expelling live coronavirus. So should people then, because you know, as you know, there's a shortage, there always is, it seems now, of things like Clorox wipes and Lysol wipes, and I can keep naming one brand after another. Uh, well, should, now there's brands we've never even seen before because <laughs> <laughs> we pick up boxes, we're like, what is this? Yeah, it's like <laughs> the Hokey Pokey brand <laughs> of disinfectant herbal, wipes. Herbal, herbal, what should we call it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, should people then just relax and... And and be more conscious. I mean, I've seen so many people who wipe down things like crazy, but then they don't wear masks. Exactly. No, I think cleaning cleaning beyond what would ordinarily be done is hard to justify, and the labor and the money and the effort would better be spent on ventilation, on masks, on hand washing, on hand sanitizer. For some of these, you know, major agencies that are doing this, I'm wondering, A, the calculus is maybe we think we need to clean, but B, it makes people feel better almost. Like if I'm going through and I'm cleaning my subway car all the time, then, yeah. then the people who are riding it, they go, oh, okay, I feel, I feel safer now. Well, and no, you're right. And actually the case of transit is interesting. And we've had discussions with our local transit agency here. Um, you know, I think we have a, maybe just a temporary new normal. And people need to recalibrate as to what's necessary and what's overkill. And, you know, obsessive cleaning is overkill. 
I also wonder if there's, and I don't know if there have been any studies yet on this, but I wonder if there's any environmental impact on all of these discarded wipes, if you can find uh, them. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the wipes and also the disposable masks. The, so the wipes are an interesting story. And, um, you know, one of the things that's happened in a few cases is people tend to flush those. Don't do that. Those are not meant to go down the toilet. Well, now I'm scared. What happens if you flush them? Well, that, that, so there's an interesting term called the fatberg. And if wipes of any sort, including baby wipes, plus these germicidal wipes are flushed down, they can coagulate with grease and with other material in the sewer and clog up pipes, whether they're in your, your home or your office or in the uh, sewage collection system. We are just a lovely species, aren't we? <laughs> Creating fatbergs. Uh, if that fat was on your KNX bingo card today, congratulations. Um, so if we've learned something from this, is it that maybe you just need to learn to wash your hands a little more? Because before, maybe a lot of people weren't doing as much as they're doing it now. There's a happy medium to the world being a naturally gross place and people touching everything and you just making sure your hands are clean and you're not putting your fingers up your nose. I mean, honestly. Wash your hands, wear your mask, and ventilate. Charles Haas <laughs> directs the Department of Civil, Architectural Environmental Engineering at Drexel University. Coming up after this very short break, will we ever have concerts? Oh, I remember concerts. Those were fun. Yeah. Will we, well, will we ever have concerts again? That's the question. Live music has basically been shut down since March. Try buying a concert ticket right now. You can't because there are no concerts. <laughs> It's an industry struggling to stay alive right now. Philadelphia has a lot of great venues, none more iconic than World's Cafe Live. Hal Real, founder of World Cafe Live, he talked to KYW's Charlotte Reese about how he's fighting for live music. When this all started, you know, when I walked out of the building on March 13th, I got a little choked up thinking, wow, you may not have any live music in here for a month or so. And, you know, that was eight months ago. And then... By the time I was talking with you in June, we stopped thinking a few weeks or a month at a time. And in June, we were coming to face the reality that it probably is going to be the fall till we can reopen. What's changed is our perspective. I now don't think we will reopen, resume full operations until at least a year from now, next October, is realistic. Because it's become more clear than ever that it's not operationally or financially feasible for us to open partially for a lot of reasons. One of them is we are shut down for public health reasons. And we certainly don't want to put our staff, our artists, or our guests at risk. And now we sit here with the surge that's going on and we see that lots of places that reopen and even some venues that reopened partially in Philly because of the was very limited capacity they were allowed, have now had to shut down again. And that's tragic because anybody who reopened partially had to go through a lot of expense in order to be able to even do that and meet today's protocols. The reality is our business is all about people coming together. Our business is all about the interaction that happens uniquely in that moment in a live performance, and people being able to relax and enjoy that. Until 
there is a widely accepted, distributed, and proven vaccine, our, our, our guests are not going to want to return in the kinds of numbers it takes to support our business. And we understand that. Nor are the artists going to want to tour. And we are part of a national ecosystem. So it's not just a question of when we can open, the whole country has to reopen because an artist like Brandy Carlisle, who we've been fortunate to host so many times, is not about to get on a tour bus just to come to Philadelphia. No, it's a very expensive undertaking. And by the way, who wants to get on a tour bus until they know that it's healthy to do so? Mm-hmm. You know, we've had thousands of artists in our 16 years, and I can't tell you how many of them moan and groan about somebody on the tour bus got a cold, and now everybody's got a cold. So certainly, with something more serious than a cold, Nobody's going to take those chances. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, be realistic about the expectations. And our challenge is to keep that pilot light lit for another 10 months or so, so that we can reopen. And we're not unique in that challenge. That's true for the independent venues all over the country. And that's a segue into what's going on with Neva. So when we started Neva in April, it was absolutely in response to the pandemic. We had, several of us in the independent venue world had talked for a number of years saying we need to put an association together. Every other trade group has one. What's the matter with us? Well, what was the matter with us is we worked so hard for such tight margins just to keep our lights on that nobody had the resources. And as I mentioned, I'm sure before in February, when we became a nonprofit in December, I said, I'm going to dedicate some of my time and some of our resources to try to lead this group to get together. Well, in April, we had no choice. And that's a silver lining because fast forwarding, there's almost 3,000 members of NEVA all over the country. What started as a social media hashtag for Save Our Stages has now become an act pending in Congress that's actually been approved by the House and it's pending in the Senate because so far it's, it's been treated not as an independent piece of legislation, but as part of a next COVID relief package. So it's an incredible story that in eight months, we went from startup to having legislation drafted that would truly help our members way more than the PPP, which really didn't do much for us or any other pending legislation. We now have over, I think, 55 or 58 co-sponsors in the Senate, both Republicans and Democrats. And we know that the act would pass if it would ever come to the floor. But we're a hostage to to the total impasse that's going on in D.C. as to any kind of legislation, in particular, another round of COVID relief legislation. If they ever turn to it, we have confidence it will pass. Unfortunately, we needed it to pass in July or August. We were counting on it by September or October. Now here we are in November, and literally hundreds of our members are announcing that they can't hold on anymore, and they're permanently closing. Now you might be happy about the coronavirus vaccines, but those vaccines could create some problems when it comes to shipping your Christmas gifts. More people than ever are buying gifts online because of the pandemic and having them shipped to friends and family or to themselves. Now, millions of vaccine doses will need to be shipped before Christmas. 
and that could make deliveries even slower. The more packages there are to deliver, the longer it takes to deliver them. Makes sense. Some retailers, though, are offering same-day delivery during the holiday rush, but that could cost you a pretty penny. Give the vaccines to me. I will personally carry them to the hospital. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I miss concerts. Thank you.